fictional frontiers. The best of fantasy offers up tales of the familiar meeting the unfamiliar. While we as viewers or readers may be visiting a faraway land or world, if the characters are grounded in who we are or who we may become, there's a resonance, pardon the pun, magical. Case in point, Hafsa Faisal's debut novel, We Haunt the Flame, a story about finding oneself when forces both real and unreal, or surreal, conspire against you. And it's the best debut novel in 2019. Hafsa, thanks again for taking the time. Welcome to Fictional Frontiers. Hello, thanks for having me. Now, Hafsa, every author, every storyteller has their quote-unquote greatest hits, collection of material they kind of pull from or away from, move away from as well. Um, what meanings of storytelling informed your literary upbringing, and what narratives led you to becoming a fantasy writer? Um, well, I'd say my literary life sort of began during my teen years. Up until that point, I was more inclined to create my own stories outdoors in the playground. Like, I would make up adventures in my backyard. Um, I have three siblings, but there's a big gap between me and them, so I was always sort of an outlier. And when you're alone, you tend to, to create your own company, pretty much. And, and I was never big on film and comic books. And strangely enough, I absolutely hated reading. Wow. <laughs> um, looking, looking back and realizing it was probably because my school had a very meager library. And um, my mom taught me how to read before I started schooling, so, so my reading level was always above the content they provided. And that just made it boring. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so for half my life, I was sort of running away from storytelling and literature. And then um, I started homeschooling. And then I was pretty lonely and isolated. And then I just turned to books. And once I picked up that first book after so many years, which happened to be fantasy, um, Graceling, I just couldn't stop. And... Um, I guess I just fell in love with reading and fantasy as a whole. That's pretty amazing that then. you were able to take that leap because most people say they've pulled from this and that, and uh, a perfect example of that is Ready Player One, which pulled from everything. <laughs> Basically, it's a, it's an ode to 80s uh, pop culture in general, but it's amazing that you were able to kind of find your own voice, and I'm curious, with respect to finding that voice and telling the type of story you wanted to, uh, fantasy has a lot of different subgenres as well. Was there a particular way of storytelling you most related to? Um, well, well, I, 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 at the time when I started reading, I was reading everything, and I think I fell in love with fantasy because I could relate to it most. Um, and I think the stories that have large, sweeping worlds and found family and multiple characters that you just, like, fall in love with every single one of them. Um, I think that's what I found most interesting. And particularly Lord of the Rings and um, one of my favorite books is Six of Crows, which is more urban fantasy, but um, the whole multiple characters doing multiple things, that I just really like that kind of stuff. The world of We Hunt the Flame, I liken it to Lord of the Rings that there's clear allusions to European myth there, but here the Middle East is clearly a source of material. So talk about how Middle Eastern culture and language have informed the world of We Hunt the Flame. Right, right. Um, funnily enough, um, I was inspired by Lord of the Rings and The Hunger Games. That's how this story, that's how We Hunt the Flame came to, came to be at its very first stage. It was um, after 
my sisters and I were like asking, what if the Hunger Games was set in a fantasy world? And that's how story first started. Um, so back to the Middle Eastern part of it. Mm-hmm. When I created Arabia, I wanted to infuse the essence, pretty much, of Arabia without it being overbearing or too different. So, like, with enough touchstones that a reader of Middle Eastern descent could say, hey, that sounds familiar, and and then any other reader can say, ooh, that sounds cool and not too different from X, you know? You could say, like, the same of the name for the kingdom, Arawiya. It's pretty evident that it's, like, a subtle twist on the word Arabia. Mm Mm-hmm. So then I infused clothing, food, architecture, and actual language, taking the language a step further to um, incorporate dialects depending on where a character is from. Um, so there are also creatures from Arabian myths like a Dandan, which yes. is a sea serpent, beings of smokeless fire, and even the founding sisters themselves. So. How hard was that to kind of put that all together? Did you have like a glossary or did you have a checklist? Because I was so impressed by the consistency because like you said, you incorporated these tropes and you created your own world language, so to speak. But nonetheless, it's not easy unless you're really consistent. Yeah, um, I think mostly that happened during edits. Um, for instance, the sisters, I I never created them as Sitla, like which is what they are in um, Arabian myths, um, I realized that they fit into that description during, like, my fourth round of edits, I think. Wow. So it was just funny how, like, <laughs> conscious work, they just put everything together for you. Um, so what I also wanted to do was create, like, a line between culture and myth, so that the story, the plot, and the history were something entirely new, but in a setting influenced by the culture of the Middle East. Because, like, we see a lot of fantasies set in other cultures. Um, and then typically when it's in Middle Eastern culture, the story is almost always steeped in myth. Yes. Which is not a bad thing, but, like, when it comes to European, Eurocentric fantasies, I should say, the um, stories are entirely their own. And it was odd to me that these writers in, like, non-Euro settings weren't taking the same liber- liberties. So with We Hunt the Flame, I wanted a story where everything could stand on its own, clearly not drawn from myth. And then to further that difference within the story, like my characters see myths as myths too, like the genie lamps, for instance. And then there's even a reference to Shahrazad from A Thousand and One Nights. Yes. So these things are far-fetched even for the characters in the book. I liken this book to Star Wars and You Hope and that the Jedi have long since vanished at the start of that film and magic is missing from the world in your book. What can you say about the role and absence of magic in your world and how you've approached it in the novel? Um, the magic in We Hunt the Flame evolved quite a bit during edits, but there's always been two parts to it, the source and the wielder. So Aravia, the kingdom, was created by several powerful women known as um, the sisters of old, who are both vessels and wielders of magic. And when they created the kingdom, they gifted the people magic through amplifiers housed in each of the five caliphates. So anyone born with an affinity could wield a controlled amount of power thanks to the magic supplied by the sisters. Um, But nearly a century before the story begins, there's this chaotic battle on 
this island where everything changes. And the sisters of old disappear, magic disappears, and the land begins to change. So, for instance, in one of the caliphates, the desert where Zafira is from, it essentially becomes like a frozen tundra. In another kingdom, I mean caliphate, sorry, the sand starts turning black. And possibly worst of all, across Aralia, this dark forest begins to grow, creeping closer and closer every day, threatening to swallow everything whole. So while the people could have evolved past magic, the, the cursed land and forest make that pretty much impossible. And without magic, they think they'll die. I mean, so they think. <laughs> the world is fascinating, but again, at the end of the day, it's about the characters. And you have incredibly interesting characters because there are multi-layers to them. What I love about the story is that we have two protagonists who are playing roles, but in some ways are hiding who they truly are or might be. So let's start with Zafira. She is known as the Demon Hume Hunter, yet she's hiding her gender. So talk about that. Mm-hmm. Demon Hume Hunter, yeah. Um, so she is a girl forced to age before a time. And I think that despite it not being explicitly named in the narrative, she's so full of anger. She's um, burdened with these responsibilities continues to pile them on herself, not realizing she doesn't have to do all of this alone. Um, so her first, her very first hunt is born out of necessity. When there's a lack of food, she picks up a knife and goes hunting. But what makes the act significant, though, is that she steps into that cursed, dark forest where no one else has returned from, and she returns. And she does it again and again until it becomes habit and a job, pretty much. And in the process, she makes the name the hooded figure known as the famed Demon Hoon Hunter. And I think on a deeper level, Zafira being the hunter, even if she's not being recognized and celebrated, she's content because it gives her gives her a purpose, Correct. a role in her village, like where everything is snow and snow and it's so desolate. Myopic views on gender in this story, it's very evident that there's this unfortunate dichotomy there. Men do not believe that women should have or can fill certain roles. And it's part and parcel of the story, but I love the fact that you didn't make it too heavy-handed. So talk about that, because it plays a central part of this story as well. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to create an atmosphere similar to our own, where like the treatment of women varies across the field. So like the caliphates where um, men and women are treated equally other caliphates where women are at the forefront of everything. And then there's Zafira's caliphate, where women are almost superstitiously blamed for every wrong that occurs in their society. So like fearing this, Zafira hunts and feeds her people and does all of this for them while masquerading as a boy, so no one knows who she is. Um, so what I wanted to do is, um, what Zafira doesn't know is that by masquerading as a boy and listening to this, she's basically conforming to the oppressions of her society. And when she finally comes to the realization that right there in her hands, she has this ability to create change, it's, it's a pretty powerful thing. I mean, just that realization itself is a powerful thing. And yes. I think that comes through right when she's leaving her people to go on this quest. And just like knowing that she has the chance to make a difference, to show her colleagues and his supporters that no, I am not the reason for all the world's fault. 
and in the process give other women that strength too. And on the flip side, we have the Prince of Death, the other lead protagonist here, Nasir. And it's amazing because he's an assassin. And right from the very beginning, we see that uh, even though he might have regrets and he may feel some shame or sadness about what he's doing, he's killed a lot of people. <laughs> and so I have to ask you, how challenging was it to write this character? Because it's fascinating. On the one hand, he's kind of filling this role or fulfilling the needs of the society he's in, but it's not clear whether he wants to. And I kind of liken him to Anakin Skywalker in a sense. He's doing terrible things, but he tries to rationalize in his mind, but uh, you know, forces are conspiring against him, so to speak, and pardon the pun as well. Um, yeah, so Nasir is, um, he surprised me in a lot of ways. I think when I first introduced him into the story, his list of kills made on page was way longer, <laughs> and he was just a darker and less compassionate character. And I think um, part of me wanted him to be more of an antagonist, but hmm. uh, I don't think he wanted that to happen. So, um, <laughs> so he is the crown prince, and he's the prince of death and a feared assassin, but he's filled with so much regret and compassion that it angers him. And like right from his very first introduction, you can tell that he's doing these things, but maybe he doesn't want to, or there's some deeper reason here. And I think that's what makes him kind of inter interesting because readers are like, what's going to happen to him? How is he going to change? Because it's clear he wants to change. And it's only until his journey in We Hunt the Flame that he realizes that so much of his life is truly in his control. And, I mean, he's just, he's just a really grumpy cinnamon roll in disguise. And <laughs> I'll tell you to make sure he knows about that. <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it. I like that. I like that. But, uh, you know what it really reveals is that these characters are not fully formed when we first meet them. And again, mm -hmm. um, there's this nice parallel between this journey that they're on, uh, which is the plot of the story, but the internal journey as well. So how important was it for you to make sure that these were characters that had to grow or regress, and how does that relate to them uh, in their relationship to each other? I think when they start off, they they don't completely understand what they're capable of, and um, it's sort of how, like, in the world, they don't understand what's going to happen next. They feel like this is it, when there are actually so many more possibilities and directions that they could take. Like, for, I mean, for both of them, despite how different they are, this journey um, for finding magic is them finding themselves and realizing just how much power they have if they just acted upon it. Did you realize when you were writing the novel that not only were you kind of indirectly being inspired by Lord of the Rings, but also by works like The Odyssey? Because like you said, they're both searching for magic and by searching for magic, they find themselves and each other. Um, but did you, I don't know, afterwards see that, look, there were parallels with The Odyssey as well? Um, I have actually never read the Odyssey, so <laughs> I don't know anything <laughs> well, about Well, I can tell it. you it's, it's, it's somewhat akin to that. I mean, definitely there's this quest myth uh, in that story, and that's how, you know, the conflicts and how the emotional 
uh, touchstones kind of uh, shoot off from there, so to speak. And to me, it's fascinating because I think that very often we see these fantasy novels where, um, you know, the protagonists are kind of fighting against this oppressive regime and they're pulled together, but very rarely do we see the quest myth used as the touchstone for all the central conflicts, so kudos to you for that. I want to talk about the romantic elements in this story. There is an intensity to the romance in this story, and it's bubbling underneath. Uh, I'm not one who really reads a lot of uh, romance novels. Actually, I don't think I've ever read a romance novel, to uh, be completely honest. But um, I kind of dug it here. I really did dig it here. I think it works, and I'm curious, uh, how were you able to balance the romantic elements with the action and the darkness therein? Um, well, one of my favorite tropes is um, that like delicious slow burn from enemies to lovers. And we, with Behind the Flame, I wanted it to be very, very slow. Um, so what, what makes it kind of um, realistic is that when Zafira and Monsieur first meet, um, the reader has this extensive knowledge of who they are, like the first third of the book goes through before they meet. So the readers know who they are, but the fear and the Shri themselves don't know anything about the other. Um, so, and when they meet, um, they don't really think much of each other at all. Like, the fear describes the fear as pretty plain, and then the fear describes the fear as pretty harsh. And um, so both of them are very, very reluctant against love and um, because of their painful past, and which is I mean, something else a bit spoilery about what happens on the island that complicates things a little bit further between them. And it takes a long time for them to work past that. And I also think that the romance ties into who they are yes. and um, how they react to everything, including each other, and how they connect to each other, too. So um, it was really fun, like creating that slow, eventual build-up and tension is always one of my favorite things. When you were writing the novel, did you make a conscious effort to kind of include different landscapes and topographies? Because if you're a fan of action, you go everywhere in this book. I mean, you've got snow, you've got the sea, you've got the island, and uh, it's very easy for characters to get lost in all that. So again, uh, was that something you were aware of going in and... How'd you balance all that as well? Um, well, I've always been told that I'm, I, I've been pretty good at world building. Um, so what I wasn't so great at was characters. And um, so when I started this book, I took a moment to like think about my favorite ones. And usually my favorite books tend to be the ones with standout characters. So the plot can be the most recycled thing ever. But if the characters are special, readers follow them everywhere. Yes. And um, I think that's pretty common knowledge, but when you're writing, it's like a different realization. And for me, making sure each of these characters stood out as strong and uniquely as the landscape came down to how they were influenced by their, their own backgrounds and societies and how they reacted to one another. So like creating a balance. Like for instance, you wouldn't really enjoy Nasir and his grumpiness if Altair's goofiness didn't exist. Right. And then you wouldn't really notice how much of Zafir's innocence existed if Nasir wasn't there as a counterbalance. So I think all of them being from different caliphates and different backgrounds really helped 
strengthen each of them, too. On Goodreads, you said that these characters, quote-unquote, tormented you for years. How so? Um, this story took me over four years to get down because wow. it was supposed to be my um, final attempt at publication. <laughs> uh, before then, I had written four other manuscripts. Each of them took, like, no, no more than a few months, probably. Um, so by the time I started working on We Hunt the Flame, my, uh, my business had picked up, and then I had less time for writing. But the characters occupied my brain throughout the day, like, nonstop. I would think of lines that they'd throw at one another, like, new facets to their personalities, and then fully fleshed out scenes, and it was just growing and evolving in my head. And even when I wasn't writing it, I was just writing it in my head, and I couldn't stop. So even though We on the Flame is like my fifth manuscript, wow. it feels like my first in so many ways. It was my first fantasy, despite my love for the genre. Um, my first time writing in third person, past tense, and such a large world. It just felt so much more real in ways that my other stories didn't. And it's probably because it was in my head for so long. And how would you pitch this story to non-YA fans? And actually, would you call this a YA novel? I don't know if I would call it a YA novel uh, per se, and it's funny because oftentimes we've had guests on our show and they're like, okay, it's a YA novel or it's being categorized as a YA novel. I just think it's an incredible fantasy. And like I said, it's one of the best debuts I've seen in many a year. So number one, how would you pitch it to non-YA fans if that's who they're shooting for? And number two, do you really think it's a YA novel? Um. Well, I started writing the story when I was a teen, and I finished, edited, and polished it as an adult. So I don't know if that had any influence, but I've been told it has crossover appeal. Yes, um, definitely. So it's definitely older YA, and with the complexity of the world, issues in politics and society, even the characters themselves, I think it could work for non-YA fans. And even though, like, Zafira is 17 and Nasir is 20, they've both been burdened with responsibilities beyond their age. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, and a lot of teens can relate to that, too. And as far as the elevator pitch, how would you pitch it to uh, non-YA fans, or just anyone in general? What's the, uh, the elevator pitch for the story? Again, I don't want to get into too many spoilers, because I think it's one of those stories that really does, pardon the pun, require a slow burn. I think what's most appealing is that it's set in a world inspired by ancient Arabia where there's a hunter who disguises herself as a boy as she goes on a quest for um, the lost artifact that can return magic back to her people or kill her along the way, unless the Prince of Death, who is a narrator, um, gets to her first. So it's a bit of a... Who's going to kill who first? <laughs> there you go. There you go. And I'm not going to reveal my age on the air, but uh, suffice to say I'm much older than you, and I thought the book was amazing. So it definitely has that cross-age appeal. So no worries there <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Okay. Um, given the fact that fantasy staples can be somewhat less exciting because of the been there, done that, uh, do you feel an extra sense of responsibility that you're uh, creating another world from – uh, source material, or you've been inspired by source material that comes from outside the typical fantasy tropes? Um, I, well, I feel like in YA, there isn't 
much quest fantasy stories, mostly because I guess there isn't really a demand for it. But um, so when I started writing this one, this book, I I had no idea where the characters would go, and it just formed as it went on. Um, and I guess mostly I I pulled from Lord of the Rings and then the Hunger Games, like in the original story, original version of the story. Um, it was more of a tournament, and there were more people on the island competing for this prize, basically, which is the lost artifact that Zephyr is hunting down. Um, and it just changed along the way, mostly because my editor would be asking me questions like, why is this happening? Why, why, why? And um, it just formed itself as it went on. Taking the pulse of our listeners, it's very clear that they don't want simple repackagings of stories from Europe. They want stories told from outside that region. We Hunt the Flame, inspired by the Middle East, told in such an exciting, vibrant fashion. That's what they want. That's how you expand the storytelling palette. So are you planning on doing more beyond this proposed duology? Um, well, I feel like the world of Arawia is too big not to expand. Um, I have a few other ideas that I'd like to tackle once the duology is complete. Um, so I think a lot will be wrapped up in the second book. Um, like, But there, the other characters are fleshed out enough that I think they have their own stories to tell. And maybe even a prequel. Who knows? <laughs> What's on tap next? I know you're working on the second novel, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you have plans to tell stories in other mediums. But what's on tap? And thematically, what do you hope readers take away from this book? Um, so after the sequel, we'll have to see if, I can, if I'm going to expand in this world or maybe some other projects that I have on the back burner right now. Um, and when readers read this book, I hope that they'll turn, all, turn over the last page and be like, you know what, maybe they aren't so different from us after all. Because there are just so many misconceptions surrounding the Middle East today, and that's my hope. Um, so I want like readers to be able to read this book and it will help them redefine what normal is and if not then at least for a girl of middle eastern descent to read this book and smile because she found something that reminds her of home very well said very well said the only thing i would add is that the hopes the dreams the aspirations the fears they're all pretty much the same wherever you go ignore the outside look within and you'll see that again as we hunt the flame the incredible debut novel from hafsa faisal so you're always welcome back on Fictional Frontiers. We're definitely going to have you back when the second novel is released. And I just want to say, keep bringing the flame. Where can listeners keep abreast of you on the web? Obviously, they're going to want to follow you after this. And given the fact that you're such a master at world building, uh, I hope you'll be, you know, active on social media. I know you are already to a certain extent, but uh, once the book's released, you're going to be peppered with questions left and right. So where can listeners keep abreast of you on the web? Um, well, on my website, I have all the links to where you can follow me. Um, but I'm most active on Twitter, at Hafsa Faisal, and also Instagram. I'm pretty much everywhere with the same handle. <laughs> <laughs>